6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Song of Songs with a session entitled, Marriage as God's Model of Intimacy. Well, welcome to session five of our review of the Song of Songs. And of course, every time we enter the Word of God, we want to do it with prayer. So let's start by bowing our heads. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity to explore your Word. So Father, we solicit the participation of your Holy Spirit that would intervene and guard, guard <coughs> and guide our thoughts, our words, our understanding, that we each might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our shepherd king, our bridegroom indeed, as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our coming king indeed. Amen. Well, we've had four sessions focusing specifically on the Song of Songs. Three sessions to explore the literal view, which we think is the primary one. We spent the last session, the previous session that is, on exploring it in an allegorical sense, some of those issues. What we're doing in this final session is to step back from that specific book and explore the whole Bible as God reveals in that Bible his model for intimacy. And so we're going to explore... Um, a number of things here. Um, we're going to have a little tutorial to start with to re refresh on rhetorical devices and so forth. Then we'll explore Adam and Eve, the institution of marriage in the very beginning. We'll look at that very carefully. We'll talk about Abraham and Isaac and, and uh, uh, Isaac and Rebecca. These are two chapters in Genesis that are profoundly provocative for our purposes. We're going to explore the most colorful, interesting, piece of literature in the Old Testament. In the minds of even the secular world, it's been exalted as the perfect love story. A little four-chapter book called the Book of Ruth that is full of surprises. We'll talk a little bit about the traditional view of Israel as the wife of Yorivave. But then we're going to focus on Paul's marriage manual we find in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get a New Testament perspective of what we think we learned from Song of Songs in the Old Testament. And we'll climax this with just a glimpse of what do we mean by the bride of Christ. There are many idioms there that confuse people. So let's start with just a little bit of background. We started this whole program back in the first session talking about the basis of marriage. There are three classic ones, the biological basis for procreation, the psychological basis of marriage, a union to meet life's challenges, its joys and sorrows and so forth, and a sociological basis where the Family is sort of the primary element, a primary molecule of our society. And these three things have much literature about them. The question is, these three traditional foundations of marriage, is it working? 
And we looked at the statistics, and it obviously is not. Not only is it not working in the secular world, of course, what's shocking, it is just as dismal a situation statistically within the body of Christ. And that's one of the things we're trying to deal with because we've all overlooked the fourth leg on the stool, so to speak, the supernatural or spiritual basis of marriage. The God-ordained unit through which he communicates his most significant and intimate truths. That's what we're going to try to get across today, setting a song of song aside for the moment, and realize that throughout the Bible, God uses the marriage as his mechanism to communicate to us. And that's what our focus is on this final session here. Now, I'm to remind you some, about some technology here, if I may, and that's the use of rhetorical devices, figures of speech, if you will. In Hosea 12.10 is one of the authorizing verses for this. He says, I have spoken by my prophets, I have multiplied visions, and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. That opens the door to what we're going to explore here. What do we mean by similitudes? Well, allegories, analogies, metaphors, similes, puns, types, these are all figures of speech or rhetorical devices. And it may surprise you to learn that there are not just these uh, half a dozen. There are over 200 different types of these things that have been cataloged and studied and so forth. And you'll find them, of course, in an appendix to our textbook called Cosmic Codes. But um, what do we mean by a simile? Well, that's a resemblance. And there's several examples of that in the Scripture, of course. We've seen many of them just in Song of Songs. Allegories, we talked about last time especially. Metaphors are another kind of representation. You probably don't know about a hypocastasis. That's a, an implied resemblance. That's a more subtle type of rhetorical device. Analogies, we all talk about analogies. That's a resemblance in some particulars between things that are otherwise different. And uh, we need to watch out for allegories and analogies because they're also licenses to invent if we're not careful. And so they're not bases for doctrine. They're just they're, they're, they're used for illumination, for understanding. Perhaps the most powerful one of the bunch, especially in a biblical sense, is something called a type. That's a figure of something in the future. It can be an object, it can be a person, it can be a set of circumstances. It's a type or a foreshadowing of something larger that's coming. And we're going to look at several of those in this session. Similes, of course, there's all kinds. The Lion of the Ju tribe of Judah. We obviously don't expect Jesus to have a mane. It's in one of his proud titles. They're used in Revelation as a climax. Uh, the good shepherd is pretty understandable as a simile. Uh, the lily of the valley, the root of a dry ground, the fruitful branch, and so forth. There's a lot of these. Types are perhaps the most powerful because these often are incredibly uh, pregnant with meaning. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrifice on the brazen altar, the mercy seat in the sanctuary, the water from the rock, we talked about that last time, the manna uh, that f fell from the sky, is not only bread, but it was also an idiom that is used in the Scripture in a broader way. The brazen serpent, of course, is a classic one that you cannot find explained in the Old Testament. It is illuminated in the New. The Passover lamb, of course, is the classic one. John the Baptist introduces Christ by that Jewish title when he starts his public ministry. And the scapegoat that features so prominently uh, at Yom Kippur and the rest. So, so that's a little background. Let's take the first example. It may surprise you to see this as a type, but it's also the foundational area for marriage, the whole issue of Adam and Eve. We're going to look at Genesis 3 very carefully because it's so foundational. And uh, in Genesis chapter 2, the last part of that, it starts, Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But 
For Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ri- his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her to man. So let's realize he didn't start fresh. He didn't create woman separately. He took Adam and split him in two, took woman from his side. So Adam became divided into two. And that's why it's so powerful when those two come together to be one flesh. That's the, the, the presentation God is giving us here. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This verse, in verse 24, is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. Very foundational. And they are both naked, and man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I'm always amused by the little Sunday school coloring books because they were naked. We don't really understand what that may mean because we believe that they were clothed in light. You can't prove to me that they lived in only three dimensions. And uh, we know all, all that we know about them, we know from the post-curse universe, and we'll come back to that later. But they were both naked. They were, they were, they were uh, uh, not ashamed because they were clothed in light. Now, Christ based his teaching on this passage. That is verse 24. So in, in both Matthew and Mark, it's quoted in uh, both Genesis 1.27 and also 2.23. One wife, heterosexual and permanent, that's the idea, and the male is the head. It's that simple. One wife, a heterosexual union, a permanent union, not temporary, as our culture would tend to <laughs> indicate, and the male is the head. But then we get to Genesis 3, which is the seed plot for the entire Bible is based on the, the subtleties of this chapter. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, and we obviously recognize Satan is indwelling this creature somehow, and yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Now the serpent is actually the word nachash in the Hebrew, it's the shining one. It is a serpent subsequently, but what it was then we can only guess. It was more subtle. The term is actually a room, which means full of wisdom, prudent, very bright, very uh, had great knowledge. And he says to the woman, yea, hath God said? This is his first step, always says. His first step is to create doubt. God had given orders. He's casting doubt about the significance of those statements. Yea, hath God said? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the one said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Subtle thing here, but she even adds something God didn't say. He didn't talk about touching it, but she's added that herself. But, and the serpent said to the woman, ye shall not surely die. See, this is step two, direct denial. First doubt, then denial. He says, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. It's amazing how many false cults build on the idea of being your own God. But we won't go there. Step two is denial. Then we go on. 
And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And we infer that was a little bit later. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, Timothy, Paul sends in his first letter to Timothy, that was Paul's protege, chapter 2, verse 14. Paul gives us a very important insight to this whole situation. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The woman was deceived, but very interesting. Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. Wow. Let's take a look at that. See, Romans 5, Paul elaborates on this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So Adam, whatever else he was, serves here as a rhetorical device, as a type, as a, as a figure. Uh, and, uh, he's, that's why they see Adam as the first Adam. Christ is, one of his titles, is the last Adam. There's a sense in which Adam is a type, an anticipation of the, of the Redeemer. See, Adam's a type of Christ. That's why Christ can be, Paul can, in 1 Corinthians 15, can call Christ the last Adam because Christ comes in his shoes and fulfills that which Adam failed in order to impute his righteousness to, um, to those that will accept him. Adam was not deceived. Now, I want you to think about this. Imagine your hat, <coughs> Adam. You're absent, apparently, when this serpent is deceiving Eve. She's alone there, apparently. And the serpent deceives her, and she sins. Adam comes home. Now, if it was you and me, what we probably would have said, hey, gal, are you in trouble? You've sinned. You're, you no longer are clothed with light. You've obviously violated God's commandment. Boy, I'll pray for you. In other words, um, you, are, you kid are in a bunch of trouble. I haven't sinned yet. Okay? That's not what happened. Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. Adam loved Eve so much that he knowingly chose to share her destiny. Whatever it is, she sinned, her, her state had changed. He realized that. He was not deceived. He chose to join her whatever it was. And because he was allowed himself to be made sin for her, he's thus, in a sense, he's a type of Christ. And without that, there would have been no redeemer, no seed of the woman. So because he joined her, that led to a drama that will ultimately lead to the last Adam on a cross paying the price that would allow her and him to be saved. So in that sense, he provided for her redemption. The question is, guys, <laughs> do you love your wife that much? Would you be willing to share whatever destiny she's chosen, even knowing that it was disaster? Adam loved Eve. Wow, did he? I'm not condoning it. That's not my point. I'm looking at the type, the typological aspect of this. Adam was a type or anticipation of Christ in that he was a son of God. Do you realize that all of us are not sons of God? We're sons of Adam. Only Adam and the angels were direct creations. of That was a term used in the Old Testament. Benai ha-Elohim. It's a 
term of a direct creation of God. The angels are that. Adam was. Everyone after Adam becomes a son of Adam. That's why we use the term, or Jesus uses the term, being born again. Because until you're born again, you are a son of Adam. But uh, in the Gospel of John, first chapter, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. That's why it's a totally new creation. And you're a son of God if you've accepted Jesus Christ. A supernatural thing takes place. And um, that's what we mean. But Adam was a son of God. He was not deceived, as I indicated. He was a figure of him to come in Romans 5. He was the means of salvation for Eve. We overlook that. He was made sin for her. So was Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was made. You and I can't imagine what that means. For a holy, pure God to become sin for us. We have no idea what that means. We know from Revelation 5 and elsewhere, a kinsman of Adam was required to be the Redeemer. That's why Jesus had to become man in order to fulfill that goal. And we're going to discover more about that when we get to the book of Ruth. And of course, out of all this, that the church is called the bride, if you will. And we'll talk about that as we go too. Anyway, you get to verse 7 of Genesis 3. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, they did that literally, but it's also an idiom of something much broader we'll come to. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God amongst the trees of the garden. They were hiding. And the Lord God called unto Adam, said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Ooh, we got that sort of self indictment. You notice that God always does the seeking. We pick this up in Song of Songs too. See, God does the seeking with Adam. He also does it with Abraham the idolater, or the Chaldees. Jacob did Bethel when he was fleeing. Moses when he was a fugitive in Midian. The burning bush. So God is always doing the seeking. Jesus said the same thing. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. And that's the wonderful exclamation we saw in Song of Songs, where Shulamite says, I am his chosen. She cherished the fact that she was chosen. The shepherd always seeks the sheep. Let's continue here. God said, Who told thee thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, he's not asking a question he doesn't know the answer to. He's just laying down an indictment here. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, your girls recognize that right away. The, father, the, the guy is always going to blame her for whatever it is. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. We have no idea what the Nakash was prior to this, dec this declaration by God. We only know it's after effects, if you will. But going on, God continues. He's declaring, God is declaring war on Satan. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The enmity of Satan, specifically against the woman, is provocative. Especially when you see satanic beliefs and cults always denigrate the woman. 
Think about the role of the woman in the world of Islam. And you get, begin to get a coloration here. Romans 5. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. So our troubles started by one, but our troubles are repaired by one. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Praise God. Well, continuing Genesis. And unto the woman now, God turns, and he says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That's a key point, by the way. It's amazing how many false belief systems and so forth fail to honor the fact that the husband is to rule over the woman. It's there. It won't go away. And it's going to be amplified in the New Testament as we go on. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall bring it forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Here is a little verse, verse 21, that many people don't really understand. They made clothes of fig leaves, and God says, no way. He made them coats of skins and clothed them. Our naive first cut at this, well, okay, that's more durable, more useful as a form of clothing. No, there's something else going on here. You don't catch it here until you've read your whole Bible and come back to this and you realize what's really going on here. God is teaching them a principle. Only by the shedding of innocent blood shall they be covered. Say, Chuck, that's a pun. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit does exploit puns all through the Scripture. And once you understand that, it opens all kinds of insights. So God made them coats of skins, teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood, they would be covered. He's not speaking just practically of raiment here. He's talking about Levitically, the, the operative here. What do we mean by fig leaves? All of us make fig leaves. Every act of religion is a fig leaf. Religion is man's attempt to reconcile himself with God. You can't do it. The most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ. That was what the young people discovered in the 70s and led to the Jesus Revolution. Fig leaves. What do we mean by fig leaves? Church going. Going to church doesn't save you. It may be useful, it's appropriate, doesn't mean it doesn't save you. Religious exercises of whatever kind? No. Ordinances, rules? No. Philanthropy? Oh, I give all my good support? No. That doesn't. Altruism in whatever form? No. Any personal efforts will not avail to establish your freedom from the penalty of sin. None of those things. Those are all in contrast to the only thing that does work, and that's the cross. That's God's way. And that's what's going to be revealed in the rest of the next 65 books of the 66 that we call the Bible. So that's a glimpse of Adam and Eve in the sense that they're the foundation of marriage. Let's take a look at probably the archetype. And when you start talking about types in the Bible, the classic one is 
Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, and I want to get into that only to set the stage for the second part of that in Genesis 24. But let's take a look at this. In Hebrew, it's called the Akedah, Abraham's offering of Isaac. Strange story. God's asking Abraham to offer his son as an offering. Is he into his child sacrifice? No, no. First of all, he wasn't a child. He's probably about 30 when this happened. But the point is, Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's in Genesis 22. And I won't try to cover the whole thing here. It's well-developed. I assume it's all by way of review for most of you. If not, you can find all about this in our materials or in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours deals with this for you. Isaac is dead to Abraham for three days. That's provocative. Many, many people missed that point of it. Abraham knew that by taking up that mountain, he was acting out a prophecy. How do I know that? Because he names the place in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. He knew, he didn't understand everything about it probably, but he understood that this was somehow prophetic. That's why he named it that way. And it, it, indeed it is prophetic because 2,000 years later, on that very spot, another father actually did offer his son as an offering for sin. And he had Abraham act that out as a type, as a foreshadowing of all of that. And when you study Genesis 22, it is full of insights. Not the least of which is the name. Abraham and Isaac, of course, go home afterwards. It doesn't say that. Abraham and the young man and the donkey go home. It doesn't mention Isaac. because the name of Isaac. Isaac is personally edited out of the record for two chapters until he shows up joined with his bride, Rebecca. That's why Genesis 24 is is so interesting. This is all covered in hour four of learning the Bible in 24 hours. Go to chapter, chapter 23 is the death of Sarah, but then we get to chapter 24. And once again, now obviously in Genesis 22, Abraham is acting in the, as a type of the father. And Isaac is a type, of course, of the son. Now in Genesis 24, again, Abraham's in the type of the father. And Isaac will be implied the, the, the type of the son. And Abraham call, has his business partner, a guy by the name of Eliezer, although his name doesn't appear here, we know his name from other passages. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.